Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 11. Thanks for joining us. This week, we interview Everett Bayarski, a man who has worn many hats at Colby and currently serves as the Director of Academic Services. Everett is one of the few people I know that can hold a conversation at the highest level on nearly any topic. I first met him back in 2013 when he interviewed me for a position at Colby headquarters in Napa. Over the years, I've increasingly come to appreciate his wisdom and vision as a thought leader in classical education. I hope that our listeners will catch a glimpse of why we consider Everett to be one of the most important and most appreciated figures on Team Colby. Enjoy. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom, liturgical musician, podcast fanatic, heavy library user, and Colby parent ambassador. I have two lads and two lasses. The youngest is in fifth grade, the eldest is in 10th, and this is our fourth year homeschooling with Colby. And I'm Hope, Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student, but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt to Bonnie's kids. And I'm Jordan. I teach Greek and Latin and serve as the languages advisor for Colby Academy. I completed my graduate studies in Germany before returning to the States to educate my kids at home. A few goats, a handful of chickens, and even a couple guinea fowls later, we just may be on our way. For families who are new to Colby and who are coming from a different educational um, approach, can you give us a sense of what are we getting into when we when we come to Colby? What it what is it kind of how is it built? The founding principles upon which it was built, and how it's operating today from those kind of its mission and the core things that it espouses. Absolutely. So Colby Academy was originally founded back in 1980 by three families, and these three families saw they weren't happy with the kind of education that their children were receiving. And they did what you know any three families would do if they're unhappy with, with education. They just started the school because that's obviously what you do if you're unhappy. You start a school. It's not a big deal at all. Um, I mean, it really, when you think about it, it's kind of an insane thing to do. But it was very much through the, you know, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit drove them to it. And again, very much the grace of the Holy Spirit as far as kind of who these people were. And each of them had, had some different gifts that were really uh, important to the founding of the school. We had people, you know, someone was involved in, in the finances and the business and the accounting, making sure they could, they could get people paid. And and some of them, we had people who were involved in elementary education and, and people who were involved in, in upper education. Uh, but one of the gentlemen who is probably most responsible for the philosophy of Colby Academy is uh, Mr. Fran Crotty. Uh, and Fran was a, a really phenomenal gentleman. Um, he was, I mean, he served as a California Highway Patrol for a number of years, but had always had a passion for, for, for education and for Catholic education. And it was his, um, he was the one, really one who got us started on this kind of classical path. And he was drawing on the, some of the works of, of John Sr., which you may be familiar with. John Sr. was there at um, uh, University, of Can- University of Kansas and found kind of a classics program there and really helped revitalize the study of the classics uh, here in the United States back in the kind of mid 20th century. And so drawing on some of those lessons, that's where, where things really began to, to head with, um, as Fran got involved, more and more involved with 
what kind of school, now that they've decided they want to have a school, well, now what? Um, and they started very small, of course, but they said early on, you know, they need to have a mission and a vision. If they're unhappy with what's going on, um, then, you know, that probably springs from the mission and vision in, in the previous schools. Well, what is it going to make Colby Academy different? Uh, and the first key thing for him was classical education. That was kind of the foundational thing that he knew he wanted to do. Um, in addition, of course, to, to you know, faithfulness to the magisterium. Uh, that was kind of went without saying. Uh, and so, of course, the faithfulness to the magisterium is absolutely part of, of who we are as Colby Academy, um, is faithful to the teachers of the Catholic Church. But as far as philosophically, he was interested in classical education and drew a lot on um, some of the work from of John Sr. and then continued to build from there. Now. And that's and that's one of the most common questions that we get is well what do you mean when you talk about classical education um, and, and so there's kind of three three things that we commonly get questions about when it comes to to our philosophy of education the first is classical education the second is Ignatian education um, and the third is the principle of subsidiarity um, and so we can maybe kind of talk a little bit about all three of those things uh, in some capacity I think that would be great. I, I love what you said about getting the school started. Sometimes I have these ideas like, well, how hard can it be? Let's just do that. And so that came to mind when you're describing starting a school. We'll just start a school. Why not? I mean, <laughs> I haven't tried that myself yet. That's why I'm here. <laughs> no, I mean, one of the, the following things that I get to do at Colby is I have the opportunity to work with uh, any number of people who are interested in possibly starting their own schools. We have a, a program, a partnership program to work with people who have co-ops and schools. And so I get to see and help people through that process, which is really exciting for me. And, and a part of our apostolate is, is spreading Catholic education. I didn't know the John Senior connection and actually um, Clear Creek Monastery in Oklahoma. A lot of the monks there came from the KU classical program. So I didn't I didn't realize that the Clear Creek monks, who are also connected with a monastery in France, I think that a lot of their a lot of their brothers um, studied under John Senior. Didn't realize there's a connection between them and Colby. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's I mean, if you if you dig deep into classical education here in the United States, as far as people who are doing it, um, there's a, a very high chance that at some point you're going to find a connection back to that program at KU, as far as as the as kind of the one of the key fonts from which a lot of this springs. Uh, there are a couple of other ones as well, um, but that's one of the big ones, definitely. And so as far as kind of our philosophy of education, we actually we, we rewrote our mission statement um, over the last year and a half or so as we were going through the accreditation process. Um, and we re rewrote it to, because we wanted to focus it in more because the old one was rather lengthy, so it was hard to get through um, and track. Uh, and actually, so Jordan was heavily involved in the process, um, as was uh, uh, myself and several others, and we wanted to really, you know, how can we distill what we're talking about down into something that's more easily read? Uh, and so what we ended up with is dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, and virtue as the primary and prescriptive ends of education in the Catholic tradition. Colby Academy aids students in acquiring the skills of the liberal arts, assists in forming classically educated students to develop a mature intellect, and cultivates openness to the call of holiness. And I think that's something that we were really happy with as, as focusing in on what is it that makes us Colby and not something else. And so you've got the classical education in there, you've got the liberal arts in there, um, and, and of course the, the openness to the call of the holiness being crucial. But one of the, the things that, that I love most about this is the fact that the first phrase is dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, and virtue. Um, and that's really takes us into what is classical education. 
hospital education at its core is value-based. Uh, and the values that it's based on are the values of wisdom, virtue, and the pursuit of truth. Um, if, if, if whatever you're doing in education isn't about those three things, then you're not doing true education. And that's one of the things that's been identified by many people as you look at trends in contemporary education, is that a lot of contemporary education has become more about, uh, you know, there's the, the phrase in, in Common Core, college and career readiness. And now being ready for college and being ready for careers is, is not a bad thing. Those are good things to do. But that isn't really what, what education is about. That's a very, um, you know, very end focused as far as, you know, it's just based on, on how productive can you be as a member of society. Uh, you know, if the goal it's about being useful to society rather than being, you know, the kind of person God has created you to be. Uh, and one, this is well expressed by, by Martin Cothran, who is involved with Memoria Press, another classical, um, classical academy. And so he, what he says is that modern education is about how to do like, vocational training, how do you do things, and what, and what to think, you know, what sort of facts do you need to know. As long as you know those, you know what to think about, you know how to do things, then you're going to be a productive member of society. Which is really a complete 180 from what classical education is, which is more about how to think and what to do. Uh, and so when we talk about especially, so how to think, that's the, the wisdom part of, of things, is, is how do I develop in young people the ability to think through things to arrive at, at the truth? Because um, that's the goal of, of thinking, is to, to arrive at the truth. And, and also, what kinds of things ought young people to be doing and how do I form them in that? And that's the, the, the virtue aspect. So instead of trying to focus on vocational training and Uh, the indoctrination of the facts that people need for a, a useful society. Education should be focused on wisdom and virtue, um, and then the pursuit of truth. And if it's based on those sorts of things, you do end up having a productive society. However, the kind of productive society you end up with is not the same kind of productive society that we have ended up with. Um, those are two very different uh, endpoints where people end up. I love the way that you describe that, Everett. I was actually just uh, visiting with a current college student recently, and one of her professors had sent around a BuzzFeed article that talked about um, basically millennial burnout using lots of buzzwords, but it, the thesis of the article is that adulthood is action-based, and mm -hmm. you, know, you see the word adult as a verb, and you know, I'm guilty of saying, okay, I'm done adulting for the day. I'm, I'm tired of adulting for the day, but um, the author kind of takes it for granted that adulthood is action-based. What, what job do you get? What test uh, score do you achieve? What house do you buy? So I was visiting with her because she was kind of scared about it. Understandably, she's saying, look, I'm, I'm in college and I'm already almost feeling this burnout some. Is this really the way that adult life is? And I said, well, it, it often can be for people, but it doesn't have to be because adulthood is much less action-based. I mean, it, it begets a lot of actions, I told her, you know, I, but the actions are the fruit of the of a well-formed um, person. I don't have all the answers, but it was definitely interesting to see how there are conversations going on right now, and some people take this action-based adulthood for granted, and other people are saying, wait, wait, hang on, that's that's a very utilitarian idea. That's a very kind of industrial revolution idea, commodifying a lot. To hear your really succinct description of how Colby's education is 180 degrees from 
that it's it's so valuable. We we were talking with Jordan recently about industrial revolution and its effects on education and how we come to view that now. So that's interesting to tie that all together. Very much so. You know, and this is, you know, I mean, this goes right back to Aristotle's uh, approach to virtue. Um, And so a virtue-based ethics, when he talks about virtue-based ethics, the way virtues come about is through the creation of longstanding habits. Uh, And the way habits come about is through repeated actions. Um, So actions obviously are important. Uh, We are, uh, you know, we are, uh, incarnate. We, we have bodies, we have souls. What we do with our bodies matters. Um, and what we do with our bodies, especially if as we repeat them over time, those turn into habits. Um, and then, then those habits eventually will turn into virtues or, or vices, depending on, on whether we're doing good things or bad things, and our habits are good habits or bad habits. Um, so our actions are going to affect our soul, is definitely true. Um, but hopefully, if we form the soul in the the course of the education of a student that's going to affect the kinds of actions that they are then taking which will will help them to continue to develop good habits which will help them to continue to develop in virtue um so if if we're all we're focused on is what kind of actions can you do and are the actions you're doing useful to society then we're not really focusing on on what's going to happen after that and that's what's going to produce for you an entire generation of people who are all about the actions and their actions have led to habits uh, and have led to a way of thinking and a way of interacting with the world that is it's about that is about utility it's about what can i provide that is useful to society and or uh, in a more selfish manner what can i provide that's useful to to me and to my own interests i'm wondering ever because i'm always looking like at, at history like tracing the origins of things and and looking to the future also like with the idea that everything that is now is the seed of what is coming in the future when when did this when did this shift come in this the shift i mean is is there a place we can trace it to or is it a mystery uh well it's multifaceted you know there are many aspects to to how you end up in a place like this um you know i mean from a from an ethics standpoint for example you could point to certain certainly the ethics of utilitarianism um have an effect on this that that what is good and bad is based on what is of the most uh, utility to to a, a well-functioning society so and there's elements there but and there's elements that go much further back certainly the um uh, well then father baron before he was a bishop gave a talk a number of years ago that i attended and it's I mean, it's sort of funny, but at the same time, there's a, a seed of truth to this, that you can sort of blame the decline of philosophy on Descartes, um, who just because of kind of the way he approached things and his radical self-doubt and, and a num- there's a number of, of factors there that, that really affected the course of philosophy coming down past him um, that end up eventually feeding into a number of different strains that lead to where we are today. I'm um, trying to trace all those down uh, is probably not what we want to be doing here today. So, I mean, there are elements that you can find elements all over the place of of where they're drawing from. Uh, and and from the outside, if you don't have, especially if you don't have a Christian perspective on the idea that the ultimate goal is salvation of souls and that we are created to know, love, and serve God in this life so that we can be happy with him in the next, then what else is there but this world? And what else is there but what can we do to be the most productive people in this world that we can be? Um, so from a, a certain secular point of view, you can see why this would become a philosophy. This is a, I mean, it kind of a, is a logical conclusion of, of something that you might start out with. You know, there's, 
so that's the first thing about classical education is it's about uh, truth, it's about wisdom, and it's about virtue. There are a number of other kind of elements of classical education. When we talk about classical education at Colby, we tend to say that we are classical in content uh, more than maybe classical in, in method. Is that there are, for example, uh, Socratic seminars um, would be an example of a classical method. Uh, and that's a method that some of our teachers might use in the online classes, that some of our parents might use in the homeschool courses, but that isn't an official method of Colby Academy. So we aren't using that specific method of instruction, although there's lots of value to that, uh, and many people will use it. Um, but there, there are elements of content that we're looking at. So the first one is, uh, you know, imitation of excellence. That in, in classical education, we, we recognize the value of what has come before us. Um, that it isn't a matter of that everything new is better than everything that's old, but we can specifically recognize what is good that has come before us and how can we seek to, to learn from it, uh, and especially if it's excellent, probably to imitate it. Um, you know, if we want to, to develop strong writers, I suppose I could turn someone loose and say, go write, and, and, and you know, odds are that eventually with a large enough sample of people, you would eventually end up with someone who, who turned out to be good at it, just that's how it worked. Uh, but that's not a very good approach if I actually want people to be good at writing. I should teach them. And I'm going to teach them, hopefully I'm going to teach them uh, using lessons that I myself have learned uh, and, pop, and, and probably from people who have come before me. Now, in, in a contemporary education, they'll talk about research-based methodology, uh, and research is a good thing, methodology is a good thing, but it tends to be very focused on, on a heavy bias towards recency. Um, and, and yeah, definitely we want to look at, at what works and doing research to find out what works is a good plan. But we tend to not to go back and research you know, much beyond the last five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years, as far as what's going on with regards to that. And so what I'd like to do, if I'm going to teach someone to write well, I'd like them to read a bunch of people who write well so that they can read, you know, who is it that writes well? Um, well, you know, I mean, in, in ninth grade, we're going to go all the way back to the Greeks. You know, we're, you know what, does, uh, what, what does Homer have to say about things? What, what is it that about, about that work and those works that are still being read to this day. There's obviously something there. Uh, and, and, you know, if you were to ask me, there's some style things there. Uh, and for me, fundamentally, there are insights about the human condition, about what it means to be a human being uh, that are there. And so that's why we're going to read him. You know, far more recently, but still not recently at all, what is it about Shakespeare that has people reading Shakespeare, you know, century after century after century after his life, because he, there's something about his method of communication the, the style of rhetoric that he's using, uh, the, I mean, his humor, his ability to reference things both current and ancient that, that are, are useful. And so if I want to teach people to write well, I'm going to expose them to a bunch of, of examples of other people who write well. Um, because we believe that if you expose them to what is excellent, people will be called to imitate what is excellent. On the other hand, if all you give them is stuff that's mostly mediocre, then, then all, how could they ever how could you expect them to excel? If all they know is what's mediocre, they're going to do what's mediocre. Yeah, I, I love that idea of, of imitation of excellence. I think it's super important. And I, I think on the online teaching side of things, um, there's, that, there's that component as well as far as like the, the teacher leading the students to imitation. I see that like in Latin courses um, that they I show them how to read and they start imitating sort of how how I do things. I think there's like this whole chain of mediation. So I guess in in classical um, in classical education, then the idea is 
is having the proper mediator, like choosing we're 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 choosing um, the best works, I guess, in a way. And and we're we are selecting um, that these are these are the classics. Is, is that is I mean, am, am I on point there or? Well, very much so. And I mean, as Catholics, we, we do this as well. Right. Um, what do we do this? We call them the saints. Those are the people that we're seeking to imitate in holiness uh, as we seek to go to heaven. Um, and, and it's all about selection. In, in our case, as Catholics, we're trusting the church to select those people who are you know, worthy of imitation uh, and not present to us people who, who are just kind of OK. Now, now, most of us probably tend more towards that mediocrity, but we have the excellence to strive for. Uh, of We have the, the direction that we are pointed off towards. But what you get to as far as the question on mediation is an important one when it comes to classical education. And that's why there's the emphasis on primary sources, because when you are, are doing this, anytime you have elements of mediation and in pretty much anything you do in life, there are going to be elements of that. The, the more levels of mediation there are, the more chances there are for people to insert things that are outside of what the original content was. Um, and that can be good if the person inserted good things. It can be bad if the person inserted bad things. And, and, it's, and it's hard to know, especially you know, if these things happened 100 or 200 years ago when they were inserted, it's hard to know, was it good or was it bad? And especially right now when you're reading, you go to, to read things. If I, went, if I pick up a textbook and I read the textbook, the textbook is probably drawing on um, mostly secondary sources, maybe some primary sources probably mostly secondary sources and those secondary sources were based on primary sources hopefully um, but they may have been based on other secondary sources before them and so we end up with this layering um, the mediation that you're talking about from uh, by the time that we get to to the textbook we're reading we've gone through several layers of mediation each of which has been affected by the author or author's um, own formation points of view um, biases and every human being has biases that's part of kind of who we are but if I don't know what those biases are, I don't have any way to 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 really uncover them when I'm reading through the text. And so I'm giving I'm reading about the Greeks through the eyes of, of eight or ten different people. And, and it's and we're losing out on some of that excellence. I never talk about any of the specifics of my work, obviously, with confidentiality, but I've been involved in some mediations lately of lawsuits and it's been in interesting because there you have different parties at different ends of the spectrum and the mediator is one of their main jobs is to find the midpoint between where the two or three or four sides are and to kind of there's the joke that a good mediation ends with one person happy and that's the mediator because everybody else is somewhere other than where they would rather be because they've been brought to compromise but it kind of adds on to that idea that both of you were just describing Everett and Jordan about each time you have somebody in the middle kind of the midpoint is going to shift and it's hard to find those layers and layers of when you've been kind of taking two points say a, a primary source and a different audience that a mediator is trying to bridge well they bridge that but then somebody else bridges on top of that and so that that midpoint keeps moving mediation is is occurring 
all around us. So yeah. Hearing that, um, that that's really fascinating. Hope I'm glad you shared that because it, it made me wonder in, in in what we're describing. So we have a so a canon is really what we're talking about. So we have a canon of saints. We have a canon of of literature. Um, but the the difficult thing now, and I, and I wonder what role Colby is playing um, in this. The difficult thing now is that the canon, what's called the Western canon, there's a book by Harold Bloom called the Western canon, the books of the ages. And he, he was this was 20 years ago and he was completely attacked from the outside. So I wonder what who is who in that situation then is people pushing against this canon of literature, which we accept as our heritage, um, as as, you know, people that have have inherited these treasures from antiquity and and even more recently now now when there's this push is is it possible that there could be a mediator in between the two points that want to expand the canon that want to get rid of part of the canon and i I don't know just that whole relationship of how did these books get canonized how do we choose what books we use um i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on something like that everett Absolutely. And that's certainly, I mean, that's always the issue, right, is who chooses. Um, I mean, that, and that's fundamentally the issue is who chooses what are the things that we're doing. And as, as Catholics, when it comes to scripture, scripture has a canon. Uh, and the answer of, to who chooses was the church chooses, uh, as opposed to I don't choose, you don't choose. We aren't involving in choosing what is scripture and what isn't scripture. That's something that the church has, has chosen. And so that's definitely uh, an issue to be considered. One of the things that um, Professor Joseph Pierce, among others, likes to talk about is um, is the democracy of the dead. Uh, the the notion that those who have come before us have actually done a lot of this work, and it's somewhat by pop- popular acclaim, is what works have survived and what works haven't survived. Um, what works have continued to endure and what works have not continued to endure. And so that's what a lot of what is going on is is what has stood the test of time. Now, that doesn't mean there may have been other great works that existed that for whatever reason have not survived the test of time. That's certainly possible. Um, and and there's, there's an excellent chance that there are a number of works that are great works that were written in the last 10, 20, 50, 100 years that perhaps we recognize now as great works and maybe are, are going to turn out not to be recognized as great works later on, or perhaps are, are barely even known now and may become, over time become known as great works. So that certainly is one of the challenges. And so, and one of the, the things that you can do is if you focus on works that are older, you can actually look at things that have stood the test of time to, as, as far as to become recognized as a part of canon. So that's the first element. The second element is we can still make judgments about texts and their value. Um, and the way, and at least from the perspective of classical education, again, going back to the notion of wisdom and virtue and truth, the reason the Greeks taught literature and the great epic tales um, wasn't purely because they were good literature. They taught them because they communicated certain truths that they thought were fundamental to what it meant to be a Greek. Um, that there was something, there were things that were happening in these great epics that were important to learn so that a person could be you know, the best Greek that they could be. So they could learn the wisdom of the Greeks and they could learn what virtues are expected of a Greek. 
Similarly, when you look at the Romans, and we have the, the, some of the great tales uh, of the Romans, and we have some of the Roman philosophy, well, less known is still prevalent. And, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to identify what are the key virtues, what are the key lessons that need to be learned for someone to be a good Roman. Um, and so that's and, and so the fundamental to this is, what does this work reveal about the human condition? What is it showing us about human nature? So it's possible that there are works that are, are you know, are, are quality, are, are high enough quality to read that they have not yet stood the test of time. And we can do our best to evaluate that right now. We can take a look at, at contemporary works um, to see what does this work reveal to me about the, the human condition. You know, and, and there may be insights that are valuable there that can be drawn out of that. And even if it isn't a, a truly great work, a work that would be, end up being part of Western canon, there's still value that can be taken from that in as much as it is revealing something about what it means to be a human. Um, and this is really, when it comes to classical education, we've talked about um, imitation of excellence, and we've talked about uh, the aim, the values that are present within classical education. The, the content of classical education um, is it, uh, the liberal arts, and, and liberal again meaning the, the arts that make uh, a human being free, or that they lead to the freeing of the human being and the human mind. Um, were something that was identified by the Greeks, and they were eventually narrowed down to the trivium and the quadrivium. Um, trivium three, quadrivium four. Uh, and they were identified, and, and they loosely correspond to what we now consider to be something like language arts, and something that we might call uh, you know, more math and science. Uh, there's a loose correspondence going on there. The trivium consists of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And one of the, the comments that I'd made, and I think this is something that Bonnie was interested in, is a lot of times when you see people talking about classical education today, they'll be talking about stages of learning, the grammar stage of learning, the logic stage of learning, the rhetoric stage of learning. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with that, but those that's not what the Greeks were talking about when they were talking about the trivium. They were talking about the study of grammar, the study of logic, and the study of rhetoric um, as, as subjects specifically. The, the use of these as stages is, is kind of a part of a revival of, of classical um, studies that's happened again over the last century or so, you know, with with the development of this, and there's several people who have been involved with, um, you know, with that. So you have, have the Dorothy Sayers and Law Schools of Learning, um, among many others, who have kind of developed some of these ideas about uh, about the stages of learning. And that is not to say that the stages of learning aren't true, that there isn't something that's valuable about them, but strictly speaking, that isn't classical in the the original sense. That's taking classical principles and then uh, molding, you know, melding them with some other principles of education um, since then. And, and those aren't, and, and there's good reasons to do so. I think there's, you know, they have a lot of good ideas present there. But when we're talking about classical education, we aren't talking really about the grammar stage, the logic stage, and the rhetoric stage. We're talking more about the study of grammar and logic and rhetoric. Um, and the formal study of those for us happens in, well, grammar, the formal study of grammar happens all the way up, uh, up through ninth grade. Uh, the formal study of logic is in 10th grade and the formal study of rhetoric is in 11th grade. And that's something that we really reinforced over the last couple of years is to draw and draw that out uh, more explicitly. However, the, the use of logic and the use of rhetoric are also things that we are working on throughout our, our curriculum as we develop through you know, the early stages into middle school and then into high school is trying to develop those connections. And so, and when people talk about the, the stages, the, the reason they do that is because Grammar is is the foundation. It's the building blocks, um, and you need to have a, you need to have 
all of that together, the, the building blocks um, of, of language in this case, to be able to then start working about uh, asking questions like why and how are these things related? Uh, and that's what logic's about. Logic is fundamentally about the, the study of relations. Um, what is the relationship between A and B? Are all A, B? Are some A, B? Are no A also B? Um, and, and, which, and that's kind of, that's what classical logic is all about, if you can go and read it, uh, Aristotle's logic, is dealing with the relations between, um, between subjects or between topics. And then rhetoric is about, is about communicating about those. How do we take the, the building blocks and the relationships, and then how do I effectively communicate to others? Um, and, then, and so they, in the stage um, business is, we have grammar stage, they learn the fundamentals. Logic stage, they begin to ask questions like why and learn about how things are related. And then the rhetoric stage is learning how to you know, most effectively speak and write and communicate about those things. Now, there, there's some value to that, but in and of itself, it isn't really classical in the original sense. Um, and so for us, we're less focused on the stages and more focused on how can we make sure we are doing the study of grammar and how things fit together. How can we look at, at the study of logic and how things relate to one another? And then how can we develop the, the key skills of rhetoric so that a student is able to effectively communicate? I think that's very helpful and interesting to think about it, to hear it um, delineated like this is really helpful. Good. No, I'm glad. And, and, and this is definitely not to denigrate the people who are involved in that approach to classical education. I think there's a lot of value there. Um, but just when, when Colby is talking about classical education, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the subjects, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Um, and then the second, so the trivium, that's the, the three, and then the quadrivium is the four. So arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And a lot of times when people hear this list, they look at it and go, well, that's a strange pairing. Arithmetic, geometry, yeah, I definitely get those. But music and astronomy, especially music, what's that doing in there? So let me toss this over to you, as I've done to many others. Why are, why are music and astronomy on this list, on the same list with arithmetic and geometry? You're just working through some music theory earlier today. And uh, one of our children in particular has a very keen interest in engineering. And I tell him all the time, you have a musical mind. And he's like, no, come on. And I say, well, it's the same. It's music and math. It is a manifestation. It's these relationships, these um, um, structures and things. It's all of that. It's, it's in audible form. And I think it is, um, hopefully I'm on the right track with where you're going with this. So it relates. There's so much math in music and Music is a form of it. I can see how it, how those we go from the principles of mathematics to an end in the musical forms. Absolutely, no, and that's exactly right. And that's why the Greeks thought the study of music was so important. Um, in addition to, there's also the element of beauty is the other element that kind of comes in here as well um, when you start talking about about music and astronomy. But functionally, so arithmetic is about. Um, kind of your basic, your numbers, your number sense, and the relations of numbers. And geometry is about spatial relationships. Um, so we have our, our numerical relationships, and we have our spatial relationships. And if we want to apply arithmetic or apply geometry, if I want to apply geometry and I want to start looking at spatial relationships, well, for the Greeks, the, the kind of the, one of the first sciences to exist was the science of astronomy, because it was the sort of thing that you could observe up in the, in the stars in the sky, and you could be looking at the spatial relationships between things. So we're going to take geometry, we're going to apply it to science um, and in the use of in, in astronomy. Music functionally is functioning here for the Greeks as applied arithmetic. You're going to take all of that number sense that you have learned and we're going to start applying it to music. And what kinds of things in music are you talking about? There's two or three things that really obviously are math-based. What are you talking about? 
Well, today we were talking about intervals, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, building on the circle of fifths, we were learning about key signatures today. So, and, and working on the, the sharp side of things, actually, and starting with one key and spelling that scale, and then finding the the fifth scale degree of that and spelling a scale on that and going from that and noticing the pattern of the progression of the sharps going and all the patterns that become evident, um, any number of ways you can figure out where you are key wise or, or what's happening with the music, basically all the different ways to orient yourself and kind of see how everything is relating to, to each other. Absolutely. So, and that, that is, there's a, that's, you're taking what you were talking about music theory, um, you know, looking at, at at chords and and such, it's it is it's 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 arithmetic that we've applied to in this case the study of harmonics, um, right? We're we're talking about the study of sound waves and how do sound waves work? Um, now at the time they didn't know anything about sound waves as far as a wave, but they could identify pretty clearly that there were relationships. Um, you know, in this case we're talking about pitch, um, but there are also relationships uh, 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 as far as time, right? So geometry is dealing, uh, or excuse me. Astronomy is dealing with relationships uh, of space. Music is going to be dealing with relationships of time. Um, and so when, when we're getting into to rhythms, we're dealing with divisions of time and different means of, of dividing time and how that might be used as well. So we have, we have the, the division of, of, of pitches and we have the division of time. And those are kind of the two fundamental elements of what music is. And, and, and at their core, they are math and or, I mean, physics kind of if you get down into them as well. So that's what, what's going on here in the quadrivium is we're taking arithmetic and geometry, something which are abstract, um, abstract numbers, abstract um, you know, shapes and, and relations. And, and then how do we apply them in the real world? You know, there, there is no number four that exists as a discrete thing. I can't manipulate the number four as a thing. It's an abstract concept in my mind um, that I am then using to apply to all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, there is no you know, perfect triangle in a sense of a triangle that I can grasp and hold on to. But there are lots of things that I understand the concept of a triangle and then I can create, um, you know, a triangular shape and then I can utilize that. So those are, so we have our, our abstracts and then we're going to take those abstracts. How do we use the arithmetic? Well, we're going to use them in music. How do we use the geometry? Well, we're going to use it in astronomy. Um, and now since, since then, obviously science has come a long, long way. Um, and so we're not going to stop at just studying astronomy because that's the science that the Greeks studied and that's classical. Well, I, I mean, we could do that. We do offer astronomy in high school for students who want to do that. But we want to know, well, the principles that they're using here is the value of taking abstract understanding and applying it to the world around us. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know Aristotle was, was a big into biology. Um, he has lots of work that he did on dissections and he, he wanted to know how things fit together. A horseshoe crabs for one. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's got some some pictures of horseshoe crabs that that he was doing did diagrams of. He wanted to know how did things fit together. So he's doing lots of the philosophy that people know him for, but it's the same using the exact same skills. He wanted to know how does the real world fit together, um, and that's where we end up with kind of the study of the sciences. Um, you know, the word science at its core simply just means knowledge. Do you ever encounter folks who? who think, well, that's great for a certain number. I think this came up in an article that, that Jordan wrote on a blog post, like we have this bespoke education and these things, like, that's great for this particular, very small section of of the population, but really most folks need to, they most folks have to work and they need a, you know, they need a vocational training or whatever. Do you ever encounter the skepticism basically? Like, 
Absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the most common objections to, to classical education is, well, that's great for, you know, people who want to go on to have graduate degrees. And they want to become professors or they want to be a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, all, all of those fancy advanced things. But for, for, you know, a regular person like me, you know, that's, that doesn't really apply. You know, and, and there's a couple of different responses to these. Um, you know, the first one is that these are the, the reason they're called the liberal arts is that they are the arts that free the mind um, and they free everyone's mind, not just the people who want to go on to to you know, really high paying things that involve lots and lots of education. Um, the and frankly, I mean, our opinion is that not only are these for everyone, everyone deserves these. Everyone should be taught how to think through things and they should be given the tools to be formed in virtue. And if we're and if we're going to deny them the ability because, you know, you're just going to end up getting a regular job, you don't need to know how to think, you can just do things. Well, how insulting is that to, to someone to say, oh, no, the, that kind of education is only for special people. You don't get to have that kind of education. You get to have a really basic education that doesn't teach you anything special. What? Um, you know, above and beyond that, there, there are practical matters. You know, I have students who come through Colby Academy, and if they hadn't done this classical education, they're going to go off to study um, engineering. They're going to go off to study, you know, going into a pre-med field. Um, they're going to go off to become a, a plumber or an electrician. If they don't get this now, they're never going to get it. It's never going to happen. You know, a lot of people go, well, yeah, we'll study the, the, the liberal arts in college. Well, and that's great. You know, we're big fans of classical liberal arts colleges. Lots of our students go to them. But for these students, not everybody is called to attend a classical liberal arts college. Not everybody is even called to attend college at all. You know, that, that there are many people that is not where God is calling them to, to be. And so if we're going to say, well, that's only, that's something that you do in college, then we're just denying this group of people something that that is part of, I mean, really part of their Western heritage of, of what we've developed and we've learned as far as how to best educate people, especially as Catholics, if our goal is, is salvation. Well, no, let's let's not put it off. It's, I mean, to not get too sidetracked, that's like the idea of let's delay confirmation until a student is in 10th grade so that they can properly choose it. Well, so we're just going to say, no, you don't get to have any grace until they're uh, 16 years old. Well, why would you deny them the graces of the, of the sacrament of confirmation and the idea that we're going to let them choose? And at, by that point, they haven't had the grace for that long. Who knows if they're going to even choose that at all? They may just say, nah, you know what? Not interested. Well, that's not that's not what that's not what sacraments are about. That's not what grace is about. Grace is about what God does for us, not about what we choose to do in relationship to God. And it's not what education is about. Education isn't about um, you know, trying to, to, to winnow through who deserves to have certain kinds of education and who should just get some basic things so that they can be the, the cog and the, the machine that is industrial society. So much there that, yes, because now I want to talk to you about confirmation, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> sacramental theology is what I when I was when I was teaching online for us I taught sacramental theology so that's kind of my interest in the theological realms I'll save that for another time but yeah <laughs> yeah and not everyone goes to college I completely agree with you there are a lot of people that that's not where God's calling them but hopefully everybody gets at least through a 12th grade education and so since Colby is so well integrated with the with the classical Ignatian approach for K through 12, it's like, well, you're going to be in some kind of a school, hopefully, through 12th grade. And so the opportunity cost of 
doing it this way as opposed to putting it off later is much lower than having to try to figure out how to read Aristotle when you're also trying to figure out how to manage your own apartment. Absolutely. And on the flip side of that, that's also the reason why we think it's important to offer really good, rigorous science in high school. Um, a, a solid biology and chemistry program are really important to us because lots of our students are going to go off to study liberal arts in college. Um, and they're, they may never take another science class again in their life after high school. And if I, and if, and if I don't give them a, a, you know, a solid foundation in biology and chemistry and an understanding of, of the basics of how these things work, again, I've denied them something that's, that's really important as far as learning about how the world around us works. The, the, these are the natural sciences, um, the, the, area, the branches of knowledge that, that are about the world around us, that are fundamental to, to how things work. And, so, and this is why we run into all the time, we'll run into people who say really crazy things when it comes to, to science, when you well, that's not how that works. It doesn't work like that at all. Um, and if you, if, you, if you don't have the, the solid grounding in those and you get off to college and maybe you want to start having discussions you know, about uh, pro-life uh, and you don't understand how biology works, well, someone who does understand biology, it doesn't matter how good of liberal arts, arts of education you have. If you can't talk about the biology of what, what's going on there, I mean, liberal arts is great, but you're, you're missing something. You're missing some, th some things that you need to have. So let me transition over. We'll skip. There's in my, my presentation on Facebook has more background on St. Ignatius of Loyola and kind of who he was, which, which is somewhat helpful in understanding where Ignatian education ends up. Um, and St. Ignatius of Loyola is just a fascinating, uh, fascinating saint. But so obviously he has his conversion story. He's, he's a Spaniard in the, ba or a, a, in the Basque region of, of modern day Spain. He has a conversion um, after he's injured. Uh, and the only books he can read are, are books about the life of Christ and the saints. Uh, and, he can, and he ends up converting. He goes, he has the, the series of visions at Manresa, has a pilgrimage to Rome, and eventually is sent off to study at the University of Paris. Um, and that's really kind of the starting point for where Ignatian education comes from, is knowing that he went to the University of Paris. Because the University of Paris was really the preeminent um, location for scholarship, specifically for the practice of medieval scholasticism as it builds up, which is a specific means of education. Um, that's focused on the rigorous study of the sciences, uh, again, using the Latin understanding of that worm, which is th they are the fields of knowledge. And so they start off with certain fields of knowledge that are your easiest to understand, and then you build on to progressively more difficult areas. Um, and then, and so, so we work for, for example, we'll work through math, and then we're going to work through uh, chemistry or we're work through physics or astronomy. Um, optics was a very big study uh, in science. Uh, and then we're going to move on to, from there, we're going to move on to the study of philosophy. Um, and then after we've mastered philosophy, now we're finally going to move on to the study of theology. And theology here is referred to as the queen of the sciences. Um, so the knowledge, this, the kind of our modern understanding of science is only, um, it's, it's only biology, it's chemistry, it's physics, it's geology. It's only the study specifically of you know, the, the, the hard things that we can observe, that we can quantify, that we can uh, analyze, that we can study is, is, is lacking. And more properly speaking, those would be called the natural sciences. They are the branches of knowledge that are related to the natural world around us. Um, and as Catholics, we believe the natural sciences are very important. Catholics are, are really basically fundamental to the existence of natural sciences as we know them. The University of Paris has many of the, the big names in science 
were the, are there out of the University of Paris. I mean, you've got people in optics. Um, Albert the Great was you know, most people know him as he's saint. He's known as a saint. He was heavily involved in the sciences. He was he was much more of a scientist than he was a philosopher or a theologian, um, as far as what he was doing. And of course, you can go down through the ages, um, Gregor Mendel and and the the study of genetics um, up into the end of the 20th century. Um, the, Father Georges Lemaitre, who was the uh, developed the theory that later became known as the Big Bang Theory, um, although he wasn't really fond of that title. Um, but there's this whole, I mean, the, the tradition of, of, of Catholics is this tradition of reason focused on the studying of science progressively. And scholasticism is specifically focused on, we're, we're building up as the goal here is we're trying to train priests. Uh, and if we want to train priests, we need priests who are going to know theology. And if we need priests who know theology, we want to make sure that they have philosophy first so they can actually do theology right. If they don't have philosophy, it's really hard to do good theology. Um, but to make sure that we have people who can do good philosophy, we want to make sure that they have good training in the natural sciences so they can understand the world around them and so that, that when they're reasoning, they can make sure they don't get off doing things that are, are completely disjointed and disconnected from the natural world. And that's where we go back to the problem with Descartes and the separation of the, of the, uh, the mind and the body, um, that they're two separate things. And he has a really hard time. He, can, he manages to prove that the mind exists, but he has a really hard time getting to the proof that, that, that the body exists. Uh, and if you can't prove that you have a body, it turns out you've got all kinds of issues when it comes to what, what can you know and what can't you know. Um, so that's scholasticism, and that's what, that's what he encountered um, there at the University of Paris. Also, as things are beginning to develop, there's, the, there's sort of a, a renaissance of, and a return to classical education and the liberal arts um, and, and drawing back to this notion of the quadrivium and the trivium. And so he's exposed to both of these and eventually he, he meets some of his companions there. Um, so you have, you know, St. Francis Xavier, Peter Faber, Francis Borgia and the others who are the early founders of the Jesuit order. And they're founded as an order that their mission is evangelization. They're, they're going to go out and evangelize. But if they need to have if they need to evangelize, they need to have priests who are well-educated to evangelize, especially because they're going to be dealing with the effects of, of the Protestant Reformation or the Protestant Revolt. And they're going to be going out into places like Germany, where they have all of these preachers who are preaching things that, that are at least partially heresy. Um, and if they're going to be combating that heresy, they need to know how to do the theology well. If they need to do how to do the theology well, they need to do philosophy, they need to do, have the sciences, they need to have this whole background of how to train up their priests. And so that's how, that's the reason, um, you know, the Jesuits weren't founded as a teaching order. That wasn't, that wasn't the initial goal, but it came about because of the need to have solidly well-educated young men who are going to become priests who are going to go out and evangelize. And eventually they're going to evangelize parts of the entire world. You know, the most of the missionaries here in North America were Jesuits. Um, and the reason for that is because they were extremely well-educated uh, most of them were, were multilingual and the ability to pick up languages very quickly because of the education they received, which then allowed them to speak the languages of the people they were trying to convert um, and, and better communicate with them, as opposed to many of, of the Protestants who followed them, very few of whom were willing to learn the languages. Many of them required that you learn English to convert. Um, so that's what he's doing with the Jesuits. He's trying to form this, this rigorous study so that he can have the Jesuits that he wants. And as a result, they end up founding schools. They end up teaching. Other people see what's going on. They like what's going on. Um, you know, the University of Paris was a university level thing. The Jesuits start teaching at a much earlier age so they can be bringing up the, you know, the, the system we have of minor seminary and major seminary um, is, is very much goes back to this kind of time period of the education that's going on with his Jesuits. And so he, he ends up starting work on the system of education that ends up being finished um, after his death, the, the actual final version. 
Um, but by the time he died, the Jesuits were running 30 schools. Um, and that's that's a fairly short time period between, you know, he founds the order in 1540, he dies in 1556. In 16 years, his order founds 30, 30 schools um, for an order that wasn't founded to be a, a teaching order. Um, but he recognized the need for structure and education. And so when we talk about classical and content, we're focused on the, the classical things that we're using content-wise. But methodologically, we're much more focused on drawing on um, on Ignatius of Loyola and what he developed. And so the final version of this plan is called the Ratio Atque Institutio Studiorum Societatis Jesu. And my Latin pronunciation has gotten pretty rusty, so uh, so Jordan can kind of cringe at me a little bit there. Um, but fundamentally, Jordan, tell me, what does that mean? Yeah, if I can read it. So it's the the method, I, I have to see it. The method and institute of the study of the Society of Jesus. Exactly, right? So so Ratio, and, and Ratio, what, what 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 root is that in the Latin root? What is that used for? Well, I'll tell you, ratio. So it's it's reason, um, it's ration, th those kind of things. And if I open this giant dictionary behind me, ratio is, from what I've found, the biggest entry in there. It's like three pages long. Um, so it's it's used in a lot of different ways. Absolutely, but but what you're getting at there, right? It's the method or the reason uh, and the system of studies of the Society of Jesus. So this is very specifically, it is a methodical approach that is based on reason to the, a system that's been developed to how the Jesuits are going to be taught and educated so they can be good Jesuits. Um, the short version of this, is mo nobody actually says that phrase. Um, everybody calls this the ratio studiorum. Um, so the reason or the course of the studies. Um, and that's what at Colby Academy, for example, at the beginning of every year, every parent submits to us a course of study, which is a list of what they're going to be doing with us every year. Um, so that's the course of study, the Ratio Studiorum. Uh, and that's what is, is, and it's drawing on this medieval scholasticism. It's drawing on the elements of, that have been kind of revived of, of classical education and the liberal arts um, that goes into this. And some of the features you can see right there. So it's methodical or it's systematic. There's a clear plan for what we're doing. Uh, it's focused very strongly on repetition. Um, uh, Jordan, what's the, the very popular uh, Latin phrase about repetition? Repetitio. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. Obviously, well, this one wasn't drilled into. This, this is because, see, if you had gone to a Jesuit university like I did, you would have heard this a lot. Uh, repetitio <laughs> est mater studiorum, that repetition is the mother of learning. Um, and you know, kind of ironically, again, we'd hear that was a phrase that we heard over and over, especially from uh, the then president of the school, Father Robert Spitzer. Um, that was a phrase that he he loved. So rep, it's focused on there's a lot of repetition going on. Uh, and then finally, it's focused on formation of the faculties of the soul that as Catholics, obviously, we believe that that we are ensouled beings, that we have souls and that our soul is what separates us from every other being on the face of this earth. Uh, and specifically, our soul has certain faculties, uh, certain things that it's capable of. Um, memory, imagination uh, are, are two of them, which are very important and are often not talked about when you talk about the faculties of the soul. And then, of course, the intellect and the will. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're forming the intellect. And that's, that's your how to think business. Uh, we want to make sure we're forming the will. That's your virtue business. Um, and then memory and imagination. Um, are going to go along with that. So you have memory work. We, want, we you know, a lot of people have discounted the, the practice of memorization. Memorization still has a lot of value. You don't do it for the purpose of memorization. 
you do it so that you have it memorized so you can then use it again later on in your life. Um, I still have all, I still have the squares table up to 20, the cubes table up to 10, uh, the fifth table up to five, and the 20th uh, up to the, the uh, tenth of, of twos. Uh, this is something that was drilled into me back when I was in middle school. Um, and I, so I've still got all those rattling around. So, so these are things that why do you memorize your multiplication tables? You do it so that when you go through life, you have those tools that are readily available. You don't actually have to think about, you know, what is seven times eight? You just say it's 56. Um, th there's a reason we memorize things. So they're, they're easily available to you and then you can work with them. I can utilize them. And so I memorize um, times tables. And then in my case, I memorize powers tables because I had a, a junior high math teacher who, who was into that sort of thing and I loved math. Um, and, and, and you memorize it so that it's still readily available to you. So formation of memory. And then imagination is important. Imagination is how we take our observations of the world around us and then utilize them and apply them. So if I'm going to be reasoning, thinking about things, uh, if I don't have any sort of developed imagination, if I haven't learned how to observe around me and then how to take what I've observed to and then abstract from that, it's going to be really hard for me to reason about anything. I'm not going to have a lot to reason about. So that's why imagination is present in there. And so that's what we're looking at. What are we trying to do as we go through Ignatian education? As uh, we want a, a method, we have a system of education that we believe is very important. We have a certain amounts of things that we are covering at lower levels so that we can then cover them at higher levels um, so that we can eventually get to the studying of things like philosophy and theology. Um, and, and really, those tend to be uh, really true deep studies of those do happen later on in life. You know, we'll scratch the surface on the philosophy and the theology pieces, um, but we don't really get that that level of depth until you get later on. Um, so that's what we're trying to do when it comes to Ignatian education, as far as this is the Ignatian methodology that for us pairs with the classical content. You're calling to mind the days of memorizing piano scores, Everett. Back in my piano professor would, it, uh -huh. would it start me out on it very early in the however, whatever I was preparing for. Start the memorization very early. It got easier as I went along, but I mean, the process of memorization, all the tools that he taught me how to do that, but the beginning was quite a daunting thing, but I really came to see the value of it once once I had been through the process. Bonnie's talk about, about music there, I think is really interesting because a lot of people, so you know, you can think, um, oh, look, it's a sheet of music. Well, it isn't a sheet of music. The music that there's, this paper is not music. Uh, this paper has a bunch of notations that we as human beings have developed to, to notate, to communicate to other human beings how one would reproduce the actual music, right? So that's what's going on there. So there's something that's been abstracted. And then you, as a musician, are going to hopefully, you'll start by just playing through it. Um, and, and I really, I myself never got much past the sight reading stage of things when it came to, um, you know, while well, I was reasonably good at an instrument, I played the clarinet for a long time. I never got to the point where, where I was doing anything more than I think there's two pieces maybe in my life that I got to a point where I can actually do what you're talking about of playing the music as opposed to sitting in a chair and reading the, the things on the front of me and just making the, the fingers move like they're supposed to move. Um, is there a, a real transition from, from that? And, but I have to learn how to do all that other stuff, and that's the grammar stuff. The grammar part is the I need to learn how to read this notation, and I need to learn how to make my fingers do what my fingers are supposed to do. So that eventually I can get to a point where I can do true reasoning or true music, as you're describing. In law school, our uh, classes had, we had one final that was 100% of our grade. And so we would build this outline of basically each lecture would end up getting put into a master um, list. I mean, my 
my outlines were usually 15 to 20 pages long. Some people had 40 page outlines. Some people didn't make outlines. I don't know how they did it. But anyway, and it was always interesting because I had one professor who would say this, you can bring your outline into the final, but if you don't know, if you haven't paid attention during the class, you're not going to get a good grade, even if you have this, this almost schematic out of it. And then that, what you were saying about imagination and about how you're not going to get very far reasoning if you don't have this ability to, to take all of the, all of the grammar and all of the logic with the connections between things and then apply it to something outside of yourself. I think that's what my law professors would get at when they were saying, you know, you, you need to have a good outline. You need to understand how how individual rules are formulated and how various rules connect with each other and things like that. But then it's it's really up to you to apply it to any given fact scenario, whether it's fictional and in school or real life um, in practice. Well, and I think so. Let's get back to that. So if you went through an education that was classical and liberal arts and kind of Ignatian methodology, how did what was it about this that maybe helped prepare you for to to be a, a lawyer or a better lawyer that i mean maybe something that you did that you saw that some of your colleagues may not have had and had to struggle with there are a couple of different ways that i could answer that both from the student side of um law school uses a lot of primary sources you read case opinions rather than textbooks that talk about how opinions are written and so it's kind of daunting your first year because you're learning how to read the primary sources, but there's a really good reason why you read the primary sources rather than secondary sources. But then also on more of a um, foundational level, I I figured out when I was, I had to write something toward the end of law school and I wrestled with how to phrase it for a week. And I finally hit on this one sentence and listening to you talk today, I can tell that it's my Colby education that allowed me to be able to um, to live this out in whatever imperfect way I'm able to, which is that the Colby education and the way that I view the world with my Colby education and the way that I'm able to practice my profession is it makes the, let's see if I can get it this correct. It makes the ancient immediate and it makes the cutting edge legendary. And so I had to get that sentence in there because it took me a week to get it down to those, uh, what is it, six words. But it really, really, um, it's exciting to watch and to recognize when I'm able to see something going on in the world around me and be able to put it into the context of the history of the world and going all the way back, like you said, with our Western tradition and I don't know how else I would do that if I hadn't had my Colby education to be able to take these things that I'm encountering in the here and now and to put them in context, but then also to be able to use things from antiquity as examples or insights or try to share as as I am able with people that I encounter the wisdom that I think a lot of people don't have an opportunity to really that I'm so grateful for my Colby education and I can't imagine life without it. <laughs> Perfect. No, and I think that's, that's, uh, I think that's what, you know, I think you, you said it really well. 
you take when you're interacting with the world around you, you have situations that come up and you are capable of making connections to other things that you've experienced in your life. And then then and reasoning about from this other experience that I have or multiple other experiences, and it may have some of the experiences may have been reading a book, some of it may have been, you know, education there at law school, some of it may have been something that you did when you were a child. And you you've been you've been able to train your mind to the point that your mind will will start looking for what parallels can I see in my own experience that might be useful to me right now in dealing with whatever this experience is? Um, and I think that's that really highlights what we're trying to accomplish in education. That's the how to think part is 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 if all you know is you, you just have, have kind of a memorized uh, list of, OK, here are the, the, the base points. And, you, and then you well, that's kind of hard. It's hard to apply those base points. Well, they don't say anything about this situation. Now what? But the goal would be to, to hopefully take a look at at the whole of your experience and be able to say, well, what lessons? Well, there's this one time I did this this thing and it was kind of like what's going on now. So I can draw a lesson from there, and there's this other connection, and that's the same thing Bonnie's doing right now with music, right? You've got you have this whole experience of music that is a key part of your life experience and kind of who you've developed from, and now that you're sharing with with your children, that you are able to draw lessons from and apply them to things that on the surface sound nothing at all like music. You know, we're not talking about music, but you can say, oh, that's like this thing in music. Um, right. And so it's and I bet, you know, hope you can do. Oh, that's like this thing in this one law case I read. And and, and any good lawyer had better be capable of there's a situation in front of me right now. How am I going to handle this? Well, hopefully they've read, you know, four or five at least past cases that and somehow touch on this. That's that's what precedent is. And, and how can I use those to apply? Well, what what's the likely result of, of this? Um, so I think the, the last thing on our list, and we can do this fairly briefly, is the principle of subsidiarity. Uh, and that's probably the, the, the least well-known of the three things we're, we're talking about. But it's really important. Um, and it comes, the principle of subsidiarity comes from the tradition of, of Catholic social teaching. Um, and Catholic social teaching as a kind of official branch of Catholic teaching is actually a relatively young thing. It's something that, that that's something that started back in just the end of the 19th century, kind of the What's viewed as the starting point of Catholic social teaching is uh, Pope Leo XI's uh, Rerum Novarum, um, which is dealing with some of the, in this case, what are the consequences of the Industrial Revolution? How has it affected the way Catholics live their lives and how people of the world lives their lives? You know, and what should we be thinking about in regards to this? So that's really the start of, um, of Catholic social teaching as, an, as a kind of a recognized branch. Um, and the first time this this principle of subsidiarity is kind of mentioned as an important aspect of this comes in the the follow-up letter to this. Unfortunately, Catholics aren't always very inventive in naming their their documents. Uh, this document is called Quadragesimo Anno. Jordan, what what do we name our document? Quadragesimo Anno. It's an Italian, not Latin, but you can probably get there. Quadragesimo Anno, fortieth year. Or? Exactly, it's the fortieth year. So that the the next one is. is and so that one's released in 1931, 40 years after Rerum Novarum. Um, kind of a, a, as far as titles go, not that inspiring. But the so he, he it, it, that's kind of the first time this principle of subsidiarity is mentioned as a key aspect of, of of Catholic teaching, and it's really refined and kind of defined by John Paul II, and his again brilliantly titled Encyclical Centesimus Annus, which is the hundredth year of the anniversary after Rerum Novarum. Um, however, the it's in the document is uh, so that's 1991, obviously. Uh, so he talks about kind of defines the principle of subsidiarity as 
A community of a higher order should not interfere in the eternal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. And the common good is another key theme in Catholic social teaching. But specifically, so the principle of subsidiarity is dealing with the long-standing notion that what is the, the fundamental unit of society? It's the family. The family is the fundamental unit of society around which all of society functions and builds. Um, and how does this then apply to, to education? Well, uh, one of the documents of the Second Vatican Council um, called Gravissimum Educationis, the, the weight or the importance or the seriousness of education, um, says that parents are bound by the most serious obligation to educate their offspring and therefore must be recognized as the primary and principal educators. Uh, and it goes on to talk later on about how this is a, a, a fundamental right of the parents, so that they are the primary and principal educators of their children. Now, that doesn't mean they are the only educators of their children. It better not be. Um, and it doesn't mean that the parents can't make decisions about how to delegate that, that education in various aspects of their lives. That doesn't mean that they're the only person who's going to teach their child. They may decide that they would like to hire a math teacher. They may decide they want to send their child to a, a private school or a public school. Um, and, and have those teachers take over certain responsibilities with regards to the education of their children. But at no time in there is the parent stop, ceasing to be the primary educator of the children. They're simply choosing, and they're making a decision, a prudential judgment about what is best for the education of their child in this specific circumstance, uh, and then choosing to act on that. But they haven't actually given up their rights as the primary educator of their child by sending their child to, to school, by hiring a tutor, whatever it might be. They're choosing to delegate, but they are not giving up those rights. Uh, and that's really fundamental to, to what we're doing here at Colby, is that the parents are the primary educators of their children. And now, you know, in the, from, from the very early ages, the early stage of this, that's, that's why they founded a school, is they founded a school because they were unhappy with the kind of education their children were receiving elsewhere, and they knew it was their job as the primary educators of their children to make sure their children received a good education. And looking around, they said, I can't seem to find anywhere that my kids can get the education that they need to have. So I'm going to start a school so to give them the education that I think they need as their parent and their primary educator. Um, and as that expanded uh, in you know, 1987, the, the homeschool kind of started growing out of the day school because there's people who live too far away to come to the day school, but still wanted to do what the day school is doing. And that remained central to, to who we are and what we do that our role as Colby is to support the parent in the education of their, their children. Um, and so we provide a lots and lots of resources for parents to do that. And parents can choose how best to utilize those resources. So we offer record keeping. Record keeping doesn't have to be, no one has to turn in records to us, but it's a service that's available to them. We offer curriculum. Nobody has to use our curriculum, but it's a service that's available to you. We offer online classes. Nobody has to take online classes, but it's a service that's available to you. And so you can choose, in, in that case, that'd be an example of delegating authority, a certain limited scope of authority to uh, one of our very carefully selected and trained teachers to teach a certain subject. But the parent is remaining the primary educator of that child the entire time. Um, so that's really fundamental to, to as far as the, the base philosophy of who we are as Colby Academy and how our role is to support the parents, um, not to come down on, on and, and impose on the parents. Are there certain rules that we have to have because we, we live in a certain society that requires certain things like um, accreditation? Yes, there's some, there some certain things that we have to do um, to be accredited, but nobody has to be with us to do that. If, if you as a parent don't want to do those things, 
that's perfectly fine. And you can either be with us partially or there's we can help you. We can talk about other options. You know, we, we are isn't the sort of thing where we say, well, you're not with Colby. I won't help you or I won't talk to you. Uh, no, well, yeah, let's talk about what other options are there. Um, our, our goal here is we're in the apostolate of, of educating children. Hopefully, hope we're trying to form them in wisdom, virtue, and the pursuit of truth with the, the idea that their ultimate goal is heaven. The, the last bit, it goes right back to that mission, right? And that's why I'm really happy with, um, you know, we did a lot of brainstorming on mission. And then we we turned a lot of the, that brainstorming over to Jordan to help us re, to, to, to kind of uh, crystallize that down to what we were trying to do. Because our, our old mission statement was several paragraphs long, um, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's hard to get through. Um, so, dedicated the pursuit of truth, wisdom, and virtue as the primary and prescriptive ends of education in the Catholic tradition. Colby Academy aids students in acquiring the skills of the liberal arts, assists in forming classically educated students to develop a mature intellect, and cultivates openness to the call to holiness. And I think hearing that again now, you can go back and touch on, see where that ran through the entire philosophy that we just discussed. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.